The passage that we are reading this evening on Christmas Eve is out of Luke chapter 2. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all returned to their ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee, and he took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And when they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God has pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And they hurried to the village, and they found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept these things close to her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Thank you, Tim. Merry Christmas, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, excited to be able to share this message uh, from Luke 2 with you tonight. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this where uh, you've, if you have a dog and you've tried to point something to your dog, like maybe you've thrown the ball uh, and the dog doesn't see where the ball goes. Like we have a dog, Charlie. Charlie will typically not see where the ball goes or will get it once and then we'll just basically be done. But we're trying to point like, no, it's over there. It's over there. And sometimes what the dog does is they'll actually just look at your finger when you're trying to point instead of the thing that you're pointing towards. And that's uh, a mistake that some of us make from time to time, and one that we make often when reading the scriptures and reading Luke 2 to be specific, is that we look at the things that are pointing rather than to the things that are being pointed or the thing that is being pointed to. Because we think about all these elements of the birth story of Jesus, this nativity story, and there's all sorts of characters of shepherds and angels and wise men, and there's a stable, there's a manger. And so we think of the manger, this, this very famous feeding trough, the most famous feeding trough in all of history, and we get focused in and honed in on maybe this manger. We see it in Christmas cards. We see it on nativity displays. 
We even see it actually like kind of this little thing made of wood that's got some hay in it, and maybe we'll see the animals coming around it. And it was actually most likely carved out of stone uh, back in the first century in Israel. And we know, like, we think about the animals that were maybe around there. Even Luke doesn't necessarily mention any animals being there at the birth of Christ. The shepherds obviously had sheep. But we have kind of an image of our nativity sets. This, you'll see here, is an image of, like, our nativity set in our home. This is one that I bought when... uh, my first trip to Israel, which was back in 1996, I bought kind of the core part of it. And then go to Israel kind of quite a bit. So I try to go and just buy like one or two of the little extra animals. And, and then it kind of fills in the whole set. But you might not be able to see it. But kind of to the left there, that's why you'll get some strange animals. Like we've got a, a sea turtle, which I don't really think was like accurate of the time uh, or the location there in Judea. But uh, it's just kind of fun. You know, got some, some fun animals. And, and we like putting this out and we'll bring a different one out each day as we open the different things of our, um, of our advent calendar. And, but, you know, when you also, when you go to Israel, you're not taking the, the actual stable scene with you every time. So sometimes your perspective can get a little off and you have a goat that's a little like bigger than Mary and Joseph put together. But, you know, hey, I, it's nice. It's got character. But, uh, but this is like kind of this traditional scene of what we might think of as the nativity display. And I just want to like have us maybe just talk here a little bit more about what was really going on here? What, what were these things that were actually there and what were they trying to point towards? Um, so let's be clear about where they were staying. Tradition has, uh, has the story going where they knock on the door of an inn, like a travel lodge or something, right? They, they knock on the door of an inn and then a guy says, nope, no room here in our hotel. You can go out and stay in that stable we've got out back with the animals, right? That's sort of the, the scene that we're used to having painted for us. Now, interestingly enough, this, uh, this word in, in the Greek, is this word katalima, and it's this word that is most often used to say upper room. And you'll see even in, in this picture of this room, uh, of an example of what like a, a room or a house would look like, uh, kind of a reenactment of a room in uh, like first century ancient Israel. Now you've got kind of this, this main room here in the, the bottom, right? And that would have probably people sleeping there at night. And then in the day, they'd take the, the beds out of that area. And that would be sort of the living area, the pictures being taken from a kitchen area. And then what you have is this little ladder going up towards this Catalima, or what is we see as inn. There's no room in the inn. This was this upper room. This is also the same word that's used in the, the Passover, like the, I mean the Last Supper story where Jesus and his disciples are having that Passover meal where communion was, was, uh, was put into place by Jesus. And so then look at this bottom left little area, okay? These two little windows going into this other area down here on the ground floor. Just inside that area is a, a place where the animals would come in and the animals would be during the night, what we might call the stable or the animal area. And even in between, kind of in that little window area, is, is, it's a groove is dug out of the stone and that is the manger, the feeding trough 
for the animals. So just for us to get kind of an image in our head of what is likely really kind of what is likely being experienced in this time, they probably weren't kicked out by whatever family members that they had or people. Just there was such a high hospitality culture in this day. They wouldn't just kick them out or say no to this pregnant lady, there's no room, but there might already be some people in the upper room. And so, hey, how, how about you stay down in this lower area that we would call the stable, this area for the animals, because there was no room for them in the upper area. And so uh, all of that, just like us thinking about how interesting in this moment, Mary in this room laying baby Jesus in this convenient little feeding trough, the manger. But to concentrate on the manger and to forget why the manger is mentioned is kind of like putting your focus on the pointing finger instead of what the finger is pointing towards. The manger is pointing towards what is most important. Jesus, obviously, right? That's the Sunday school answer that we're all going to have. But like the question then is, why does Luke mention this major then so many times in the story? And the answer is because it was the feeding trough. Not that feeding troughs were normally used as cribs for little babies. That's not at all the case. But the feeding trough was a sign for the shepherds. The feeding trough was a sign for these shepherds who are people that take care of sheep. I got to take care of my throat. Uh, <clears throat> so it, what it was, was it, this manger would tell them where this baby was that they were going to look for. Imagine they're told to go to Bethlehem. There's all sorts of houses in Bethlehem. There's all sorts of people there. Maybe there's multiple babies even in this one house. I don't know. But they know to find the baby that's laying in a feeding trough. And so how fitting for a bunch of people that take care of animals to go look for this sign of the baby laying in the manger. And it's such a wonderful human touch as well to think of this young mother finding this animal trough, feeding trough, ready to be this bassinet for her baby, just this beautiful display of humility with God himself coming down to live in the real-life messiness of our lives. It's a, it's a beautiful thing that our God was willing to do that. And it showed these shepherds that the angel knew what the angel was talking about. What? The baby's lying in where? And they go and they find him like, oh yeah, this is the one. Now, why is that significant that this baby would be found by these shepherds? Because it's the shepherds here so far that are really the only other people other than Mary and Joseph who've been told that, like, that this baby Jesus is here and really who this baby was. I mean, Mary and Joseph have like Elizabeth and Zechariah that they've been able to talk with probably a little bit, but they haven't really had anybody else that they could talk to about this. Imagine them trying to be like, yeah, yeah, I got Messiah. You know, the one we're all waiting for right here. It's me. And so it's just, you know, they're probably holding on to this secret. And I even think over time, like maybe their faith is starting to fade a little bit and they need to be shored up in that. But these shepherds are told, what child is this? They are told that this child is Messiah, Savior, Lord. They are told these things. And that is who they come to look for. And that is who they find. The manger isn't important 
in and of itself. It's a directional sign. It's a pointing finger to the identity and mission of the baby lying within it. And so these shepherds who have been summoned in from the fields of Bethlehem, just like a thousand years earlier, King David, or David, the shepherd boy, was summoned in from the fields of Bethlehem to be anointed to be the king of Israel. These shepherds come in to see the true king for eternity of all of Israel and all of the entire world. And they come to bring this, this confirmation for Mary and Joseph from a really unexpected source. These these shepherds are some of the lowest of society in, in respect and honor, and they are the first ones that are told and the first ones that come in to confirm who Jesus is. Now, we assume or we think maybe these shepherds knew what a Savior, a Messiah, or a Lord would do. We do know that these shepherds were likely tending the sheep, tending these lambs, out in this area of these, these hill, this hillside of Judea in Bethlehem area, they were tending the lambs that were going to be used as the sacrificial lambs during the Passover. That these lambs would be sacrificed to take the sins of the people upon themselves and to bear the, the punishment that the people deserved. And they took that, those lambs and they were sacrificed there. They were watching those lambs as they go to see and foreshadow that Jesus, the Lamb of God, would bear the sins of the world upon himself. It's amazing. We don't know all that they knew or all that they understood. But if we need some reminding, we can look to how Luke starts this whole story with Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, way off in Rome at the height of his power. That's how this story starts. Augustus, he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And he became the sole ruler of all of the Roman world after this bloody civil war where he defeats all of his rivals, uh, most famously the last one being Mark Antony. So he defeats all of them, and now he has taken the Roman Republic and turned it into an empire of which he is the head. And he actually then says that his father, who is now dead... Julius Caesar, that he was divine, that he is a God. And so now Caesar Augustus says, I am son of God. Now people were writing about him and saying that he brought justice and peace to the whole world. And uh, that he, poets wrote songs about this new era that he had begun and that his, the rise of Rome was good news a gospel of good news that Rome was bringing to the world, reaching its climax with Augustus himself. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world, its king and its lord. And so then way out, even all the way out in the eastern frontier of his empire, Israel, Asia Minor, what's Turkey today, even way out in that area, people are worshiping Caesar Augustus as a god. And it's way out on that same frontier that then this baby is born into the middle of that kingdom. It was his census that brought them to Bethlehem. And that this baby who was born within a generation would be hailed as the son of God. That people would worship and proclaim him to be Savior and Lord. Who His advent, his arrival would bring true peace, true justice to the world. 
Jesus never stood before a Roman emperor. He never had to go and stand before one of the Caesars. But he did stand before his representative in Israel, the governor Pontius Pilate. And Luke, as he's writing this entire story, he must have that in mind, how there at the end, right before his crucifixion, he meets Pontius Pilate. And all the way back at the beginning, though, it was this census of Caesar Augustus that forces Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem, the place that was the city of David, the place of kings, and he is of the line of David. And so the birth of this baby is this beginning of a confrontation between the kingdoms of this world in all of their splendor and strength and power, and then the kingdom of God, which comes in sort of seeming weakness and insignificance and vulnerability and just this baby laid in a feeding trough. And it starts to show the, the upside-downness of God's kingdom, the, the difference of the kind of kingdom that God is bringing. We don't, know, we don't know, we don't think that Augustus had actually ever heard of Jesus of Nazareth. But in less than a century, his successors in Rome are trying to obliterate and kill all of his followers because of a threat to them as they are gaining in, in sort of what seems to them to be the power of their world, but it's not. It's a whole different kind of power. And within 300 years, the emperor of Rome himself becomes a Christian. That Jesus is ushering in his kingdom. And so when you see a manger on a card or in a nativity display someplace, don't just stop at the crib. See what it's pointing to. See what it's pointing to. The explosive truth of the reality that the king of kings is laying in that manger. He is already the king of kings, even as he lays there, that the baby that the manger is pointing to is Emmanuel. God, very God, with us in the flesh, that the baby lying there will live a perfect life that none of us could live. That that baby lying there would willingly go to the cross just like those sacrificial lambs, to bear the sins of the world upon himself and then to take the consequence of death upon himself, that we would deserve that baby lying there willingly died on the cross for us. And that baby lying there on the third day would rise again, coming back to life, conquering death in victory over sin. That's that baby lying there. That's what the manger is pointing to. That's what the angels are pointing to. The shepherds, the magi, the sheep, the sea turtle, everyone, they're all pointing to that baby lying there. And the rest of Luke's story, both in his gospel and then in the book of Acts, just displays even more and more and more of how he comes into his kingdom. We, because of that baby, Jesus himself, we have a thrill of hope. We are, as the song says, we are a weary world. We truly are a weary world. We have our own sin, our own wrong that we have done, our own struggles, our own hardships in life. We are a weary world, but because of the baby lying in that manger, we have a thrill of hope, hope, and we can rejoice because 
that baby is the king of kings that has conquered sin and death and has given us in his power his love and his grace just pouring out to each one of us. And so I ask you tonight, how will you respond to that news, that very, very good news? How will you respond to it? You know, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you, if you simply you speak, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you are Lord. I, I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died and rose again. Please forgive me, Lord. That's, that's what it is. You will be saved, he says. And you will need then his power and his strength in this community to walk with you through the rest of it. But that's, that's the good news. And that's why we're here, friends. That's what's the whole point of all of this celebration. And so I would just ask you, like, again, right now, how would you respond right now to that news? Maybe that's for you to pray with me even in the midst of this moment. Maybe that's God calling you to share that good news with a friend or loved one. But I'd love for you just right now here tonight, if you sense the, the Spirit of God or something nudging you in your, in your head or your heart in some way, I just want you to pray with me and pray a prayer kind of like this. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe that you died and rose again. I need your forgiveness. I know I have sinned. Please forgive me. Please wash me clean. And please give me strength to live each day for you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So I encourage you, if that was something that God had put on your heart now, just to to share that with someone, to share that with us later. We'll give you some ways later to respond. But just like, don't just sit in that yourself. We want to help walk with you through that. And we want to celebrate. That's what we're celebrating here tonight. And so what we're going to do even now is this next step of the celebration is to light the Christ candle. This Christ candle, as we've already lit these other candles at this period of waiting, now is the advent, the arrival of Jesus that we've been waiting for. We now, we now wait for his second coming again. So we celebrate his first coming, and we long for him to come and return. But now, as we'll light this candle, we remember that, that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That's what Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. And then he says, you are the light of the world. We're actually going to talk about all that even more tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. if you'd like to come to church. Uh, So we're going to talk about that tomorrow. But he says, I am the light of the world. So let's light the Christ candle, remembering that Jesus is the light of the world. And then I'll take this candle as I'll have a few friends that are going to come up. But now's the time for you to grab your candle. As we said, I am the light of the world, Jesus says, and then he says, you are the light of the world. And so we will take from this Christ candle the light of Jesus and then bring it out 
and it'll be shared and you can pass it along with you. There'll be people kind of bringing it around to different spots and then just pass it to the friend next to you and then just encourage you over these next couple songs to just hold your candle as vertically and safely as possible, uh, watching the hair of the people in front of you and minding your children. Um, so all of that. Um, but so we take from this Christ candle, Jesus, the light of the world, and he says, you are the light of the world as well.